welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. As US President Donald Trump prepares to deliver his second State of the Union address, we'll examine the state of his presidency as the focus begins to turn to 2020 and the next race to the White House. We'll also be looking at the extraordinary political events in Virginia, where the governor, Ralph Northam, is fighting to keep his job after attention was drawn to a racist photograph that appeared on his medical school yearbook page. Later, I'll be talking to Daniel McLaughlin in Budapest about why the collapse of a Cold War missile treaty is sending a shiver through the European countries that fear being caught in the middle of a new US-Russia arms race. It's to the United States first, though, and I'm joined on the line from Washington by our correspondent, Suzanne Lynch. Um, Suzanne, uh, Donald Trump will deliver his his State of the Union address at 9pm US Eastern Time on on Tuesday, which is 2am in the morning Irish time. Um, What are we expecting the big themes to be this year? Yes, well, first of all, I suppose it's worth noting that the uh, State of the Union address this year has already been delayed. It was supposed to take place um, Tuesday, last Tuesday at the end of January, but because of the government shutdown, it was delayed and there was really an impasse between uh, Donald Trump and Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker, about whether you could have the State of the Union address uh, during a shutdown. And she had decided essentially to, to cancel it, to say she was not prepared to kind of provide security under the shutdown situation. Uh, but things got resolved and it's now happening uh, this evening. And from what we can, we can gather from Donald Trump, this is he, he likes the State of the Union address. He is, a, he is a person, of course, who flies in the face of convention again and again, but on certain issues, he likes the pomp and ceremony of tradition. And um, there's nothing more traditional than this address. This is the, the opportunity each year for the president to come to Congress and deliver a set piece a speech of about an hour long, sending out his po- policy priorities and setting out his achievements. Uh, it's going to be attended by the, the full Senate, by the House of Representatives and by Supreme Court justices. Uh, and will be broadcast uh, across the US um, on TV. But uh, in terms of, of the kind of themes, we are getting suggestions from White House officials. They've said that Donald Trump wants to stress the importance of unity, of bipartisanship, of comity, of, of getting things done. Uh, but uh, in terms of the detail of what we expect, it seems as if it's going to be quite a bit away from that. Um, because I think the real issue now for Donald Trump is that he's giving this speech against a background of complete division uh, about and stalemate about another possible government shutdown and about his funding for his border wall. So we would expect him to reiterate the case for a border wall and immigration. Uh, and also another theme that's likely to come up here a lot and, and tends to in State of the Union addresses uh, is foreign policy. Uh, so we may get something, some indication of you know, his, his, his upcoming meeting with Kim Jong-un on later this month, um, maybe something on Iran, uh, et cetera, about possibly the issue of troops in Afghanistan and, and the early uh, withdrawal of troops from Syria. So that's the other kind of key theme that we're expecting tonight. Now, one of the things presidents like to do with the State of the Union address is to trumpet their successes of the, the previous 12 months. What do you think Trump will be able to point to in, in this context? I think it's going to be the economy. Um, Donald Trump has had a, a very successful economic track record. That, if you look at the figures of GDP figures um, and job figures, just uh, in the last few days, the um, the Department of Labour have published new figures for jobs in January, and the number of jobs added it was it was more than three hundred thousand in January is much higher than analysts had expected. Uh, so I think this is going to be something that he he uh, trumpets during his speech. 
Um, obviously, we could talk about this, obviously long term implications of this. I mean, his a lot of a lot of the reason the economy is doing so well is because the short term boost that the tax cut package he introduced gave, and that will inevitably fade over time. Um, there are also concerns, obviously, about his the impact of what he's doing with China and other countries on trade, how that's going to affect the long-term economic health of the country. But he probably will talk about those trade negotiations as well. Um, they're quite an important point between the US and China. Uh, China essentially has a deadline before the 1st of March to come up with some kind of an agreement with America or else uh, the, the Washington will impose a higher sanctions on a lot of their exports. So it's, it's pretty serious. And, and analysts, trade analysts would point to the fact that, you know, Donald Trump is taking this on. And I think there is widespread acceptance uh, that something did have to be do done about uh, this whole trade relationship with China and not just in terms of tariffs, but about big concerns about their, their use of intellectual property and things like that. So um, I definitely would expect he will say something about what he's he, he's done in trade. So trade, economy. But of course, uh, Chris, there's a lot of stuff he has not done. Number one being his wall. Number two, infrastructure plan. We heard a lot about this in the first few months of the presidency. Nothing has happened on that. So some people will want uh, some kind of mention of that in tonight's speech and any plans on what he is doing on that. And I mean, given that strong economic performance, Suzanne, you talked about, and we're all familiar with the Bill Clinton line, it's the economy stupid, which mm. the suggestion being that that's all that really matters to voters. Um, uh, given how well the economy is doing, it should be all plain sailing for Trump really now. It should be rosy in the garden for him. But you don't get that sense, do you? It's, it's the, yeah. He's a lot of troubles on his, on, the, on his menu as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and this is, this is the issue. Donald Trump is such a divisive figure. Um, that on the one hand, Democrats who, who don't like him, uh, Democratic voters, um, are not prepared to give him the benefit of the doubt about the economics. It's just just not not happening with them because they are so appalled in some cases by Donald Trump's presidency. Um, and then I suppose Republicans who who the the, the core base, Donald Trump's problem again and again is that his core base are sticking with him. There is no question about that. But he's not. He doesn't seem to be able to bridge the gap and bring on any other. Uh, voters with him. So like Bill Clinton is a good example. He was a more centrist Democrat and he brought a lot of Republicans or, you know, moderate independent voters with him. He was a Southern Democrat as well. He got a lot of those, those states in the South who supported him. But Donald Trump just doesn't seem to be able to bridge that gap at all. So there's only so far the economy uh, can take him. And of course, now he's in danger of losing his some of his supporters because of immigration, because it looks like he's becoming increasingly in frustration himself, but that's looking increasingly uncertain about whether he will get his, his signature promise, his border wall built. And if he does not do so, and if he's seen to concede to Democrats, that is going to alienate some uh, of his hardcore supporters on the right. And on that subject, uh, Suzanne, and uh, the, the row over the border wall, as we know, they got the government reopened temporarily until, until mid-February while they tried to work out a permanent solution. What's the latest on that row? Is there, does it look like Trump will have to back down on, on, on this issue? Well... At the moment, a bipartisan committee of members of Congress have been meeting to try and thrash out some kind of agreement. And this was, Donald Trump signed up to that uh, about 10 days ago when he eventually caved in, I suppose, and decided to si sign the bills to reopen the government. Uh, but Donald Trump himself in the last few days has poured, you know, scorn on this process. He's called it a waste of time. So there's a real sense now that he's moving and that he he really wants to declare a national emergency. Now, I know we spoke about this a few weeks ago. This is, legally, he is able to do, do that. Presidents have the power to essentially declare there is a national emergency, he would say, in this case, about immigration. He, he is continually 
describing it as an invasion of the southern border, and we will probably see some of that language tonight. Uh, so he could declare a national emergency, and that would essentially allow him to abandon the legislative process in terms of getting money for his wall and tap Department of Defence funds directly. Uh, but if he does that, that's got huge... That, that would definitely be open to legal challenges because it's got huge constitutional implications because essentially he would be taking money that members of Congress have already appropriated, have already decided how to spend and using it for what he thinks uh, it should be spent on, i.e. a wall. Uh, so not only are we seeing some pushback from Democrats, we're also seeing some pushback from Republicans. And uh, reportedly, Mitch McConnell, the top Senate Republican, met with Donald Trump last week one-on-one -on -one, and warned him about the perils of this policy because he believes that a lot of Republicans would go against the, the president on this. Um, so if he was to invoke a national emergency, uh, Nancy Pelosi would probably bring forward some kind of bill or disapproving of it. This would have to go to the Senate then. And even though Republicans are the majority, they've only a small majority. And we've seen in recent times they have voted against the president on, on a number of issues. So if they were to vote against him, he would have to use his veto and, and a certain amount of senators, not as big of a, tr a threshold, but he would have to keep some of those on board and essentially override his own party. And I think that would look, the optics of that would be very bad because Republicans are worried that if Donald Trump uses this veto or uses his powers to declare a national emergency, well, then that sets a precedent and that future Democratic presidents could use this, for example, on something like gun crime. Um, on another foreign policy issue, etc. So that is why a number of them are very wary about him deploying this tactic. So his options really seem to be narrowing now, don't they? Yeah, and I think that's becoming more and more the case because it looks like uh, this committee, this meeting, is continuing to do so this week and into the weekend. And again, it's all coming down to the border wall funding. Democrats are trying to move somewhat and say, and they say they, they want a techn technological solution at a lot of echoes to what's happening in Ireland with the, with the border backstop. But, you know, how, what, when is a border a border kind of issue? And Donald Trump has kind of backed himself into corner saying, you know, he wants some kind of physical wall, but maybe slats or, con you know, it doesn't have to be this huge concrete wall. Um, but I think he has backed himself into a corner. And, and, and I think at this point, his presidency, you know, it's still debatable about who blames who for the, for the government shutdown. But at the moment, I think he has overplayed his hand and has backed himself into a corner and it's kind of lacking that kind of leadership or command of the situation. Again, Nancy Pelosi, who will incidentally be sitting beside him during the speech, um, you know, has re is really in control of this this whole debate about the, the government shutdown. So I think this has been, you know, I, I think I, I, I would expect him to declare a national emergency because at least if he declared one, it will probably get stuck in the courts and the wall will not be built during his presidency if he's one-term president. Um, but at least he can say, look, I tried to build the wall, but Congress would not let me and now the courts are stopping me. So again, that might feed into his kind of a narrative of the aggrieved leader who's trying his best to do things differently, but has just been, been stopped by the various structures of power in the United States. And you mentioned Nancy Pelosi there, Suzanne. What do you think her expression will be tonight as she sits um, <laughs> well, next to the president? Yeah. Yeah, the theatrics of this are going to be very interesting. And, and, and it's important to mention, I suppose, in a way, you know, this is his third address to Congress. His first address wasn't technically called the State of the Union, but it essentially was. But of course, it's his first um, when Democrats are in control of the House. So we're probably not going to be seeing these kind of enthusiastic, you know, maniacally clapping uh, members of Congress that we saw in prior years when Speaker Ryan was in charge. And, and of course, we're going to have people... And um, this whole new crop of uh, Democratic members of Congress, women, um, ethnic minorities who are now going to be sitting there in, in the chamber uh, listening to Donald Trump. So that whole power dynamic has changed 
Also, it's worth mentioning that um, most members of Congress bring a guest. So one member of Congress has, uh, is, has decided to bring an undocumented immigrant who was fired uh, from working in Donald Trump's golf course in New Jersey. Um, someone else is bringing uh, a woman who accosted Senator Jeff Flake in the elevator in Congress. People might remember that uh, during the Kavanaugh hearings. Uh, and then Melania Trump just last night, they announced who they're going to bring. And um, one of the people they're bringing is, is a young boy, a young teenager, I believe, whose surname is Trump and who has been bullied in school because his surname is Trump. And of course, this feeds into the Melania's Trump, Trump's uh, focus on issues of cyberbullying, etc., which again, obviously brings its own question of the, of the deep, deep irony that Melania Trump has picked the idea of cyberbullying as her signature policy when her own husband, of course, has been engaged in name-calling and all kinds of offensive behaviour on Twitter. So it'll be quite interesting to watch how those dynamics in the chamber play out tonight. And, and finally, on on that on this theme, Suzanne, the, the rebuttal to the address for the Democrats will be delivered by Stacey Abrams, the, who, who narrowly lost the, the governor's race in Georgia in November. What's the significance of that choice of her to yeah, deliver now that? The first thing to say about that is that it won't take place in the chamber. So it, it will take place uh, somewhere else. You know, the, Joe Kennedy Jr., one of the Kennedy dynasty, he gave the address last year. So it's important, but it's, it's not that important in a sense. As in, I think a lot of the coverage after he finishes speaking will be about what the president has said, you know, particularly if he gives, uh, you know, any serious indication about his, what he's going to do about the wall or about Afghanistan, etc. Mm. Uh, in saying that, I think it's saying a lot about um, her role in the Democratic Party. As you say, she narrowly lo lost that uh, governor's race in Georgia, but she has become the focus uh, of a lot of attention by senior Democrats. Chuck Schumer is encouraging her to run in the Senate, next year's Senate race, in Georgia, people like Kamala Harris has met her and had lunch, people like Cory Booker. So they really see her as an important figure in the Democratic Party. And, you know, a, a hugely symbolic, she's a 45-year-old African-American woman, extremely articulate, uh, extremely passionate. She got the support of Oprah Winfrey, various kind of celebrity endorsements during the campaign. So, yes, the very fact that she has been asked to, to give this rebuttal is significant. And, and she is one to watch in the party. There is no doubt about that. Great, Suzanne, just to, to come to that story in Virginia, which I mentioned at the outset, because it, it has taken several twists and turns since it, it, it broke a few days ago after a photograph surfaced in, in the medical school yearbook of the governor there, Ralph Northam, a Democrat. Maybe can you just take us through this story step by step for people who may, may not have followed every, every detail of it, just yeah. going, going back to the beginning. Well, on last Friday evening, a report surfaced of uh, a picture of a school yearbook when the current governor of Virginia was in medical school in 1984. And on that, his, his school book year page with his name, Ralph Northam, there are various photographs of him. But one of the photographs shows two men, one uh, dressed up as a Ku, Ku Klux Klan member and the other in blackface. And that, that's a very offensive, it's the idea that you blacken your face white person blackens its face to, to look like an African-American person. So on Friday evening, Ralph Northam, the governor, he's a Democratic governor, put out a statement apologising for this and essentially saying that, you know, he, he said that uh, he regretted this behaviour is not in keeping who I am and that he had appeared in this photograph that was clearly racist and offensive and he was apologetic for it. So called for his resignation grew. But on Saturday, it took a twist because he delivered, gave a press conference on Saturday in Richmond, the capital of Virginia, and actually said, hang on, I was wrong. I believe now that I'm actually neither of those people in that photograph. This was not me. 
Um, which begs the question, of course, how would you forget that you, if, you know, did you or did you not dress up as yes. one of those people in 1984? And then to kind of make matters worse, he said, but he did dress up in blackface once when he did a Michael Jackson impression at an event in San Antonio the same year. Uh, so it seemed to kind of say that's okay. That's okay. He did not say that, but again, kind of, you know, dug himself a deeper hole. So the calls over the weekend were, were pretty remarkable. I mean, from the highest level of the Democratic Party, people like Nancy Pelosi, former President Joe Biden, Terry McAuliffe, the former governor of, of Virginia himself, who's a huge ally of Northam. All these people came out and said he should resign. Hillary Clinton, you know, Elizabeth Warren, everybody. But he has not resigned. Um, and at the moment, he went back to the governor's mansion on, on Monday. He met with his cabinet. And essentially now what's happened is there is a huge division in Virginia among his cabinet, whether he should resign or not. But the... And, and, the, and there was a twist on Suzanne Wassinger when in, uh, suddenly a, an, an allegation of sexual assault yes. emerged against his l lieutenant governor, Justin Fairfax, who I think w would succeed or would t assume the governor's role if Northam was forced to step down. Sorry, just tell us about that. Exactly. So if he is forced to step down illegally, the lieutenant governor, another state role, Justin Fairfax would take up uh, that position. Justin Fairfax himself is a very uh, well-respected figure, 39-year-old African-American kind of hotshot lawyer who's lieutenant governor. Um, but then he was being forced with his own mini-scandal because the same right-wing website that published the, initially the report about the photographs um, published a report on Sunday saying that he had been uh, accused of a sexual assault allegation in a hotel room um, some years ago. Um, Fairfax put out a statement denying this uh, and it turned out that the Washington Post had been tipped off of this, about the story a year ago, but couldn't corroborate it and haven't printed it. But now this story about a, a, an alleged sexual assault has surfaced. Fairfax has accused uh, others of smearing him and even suggested, hinted at, but didn't say directly, that it could be Northam himself or Northam's team that may have put out this story. Yeah. Because he said it was a bit of a coincidence. And then he seemed um, to kind of backtrack a bit and he pointed the blame at somebody else, I think, and didn't then he? He, hmm. he, he pointed the blame in a mayor's office. So... He, he has now become embroiled with that. So if he was to replace Northam, he himself would be mired uh, in controversy. And also the other aspect of this controversy that's, that's worth mentioning is the when the photographs surfaced last Friday, two days earlier, Northam had hit national headlines for comments he made about abortion. This is a separate issue, but basically Virginia um, was changing the law around late-term abortion. And Northam, who's himself a doctor, made a comment on local radio that Republicans seized on where he seemed to suggest, um, I need to be careful the way to explain this, but essentially that of a child, you know, a baby is delivered after a failed abortion attempt. You know, maybe a conversation, he said, could take place at that point. So these, these comments that were captured on radio, he said he was quoted out of context. But people like Kellyanne Conway, people like Donald Trump have seized on this issue about abortion, um, about his comments on abortion. And so the suspicion is, obviously, that these photographs emerged uh, and came from some kind of a disgruntled Republican or pro-life campaigner was so annoyed about his comments about abortion that that's why they brought to light these photographs, um, unconnected photographs from 1984 from his, his year back. But it is extraordinary that he's holding on because it's been it's been a long time since we've seen the, this issue in American politics that absolutely everybody from their own party has basically said they resign and they're hanging on. Because, of course, Democrats are very aware that they've accused Donald Trump of racist behaviour. And here they have somebody in their own camp who is not prepared to step down about something that, that almost everybody said is, is frankly unacceptable in 1984. Uh, so it'll be very interesting how this plays out in the next few days. But as I say, he is still hanging on at the moment. 
And is it essentially, Suzanne, a local uh, political controversy that's confined to Virginia or does it have the potential to damage the Democratic Party beyond that? It does. It definitely has the, the potential to damage the Democratic Party. Uh, Virginia itself, you know, the context here is huge. Virginia is just just south here of Washington, D.C. And um, it it has a, a dreadful history of segregation, of racism. It's where the first slaves arrived to America 400 years ago. It's where the Charlottesville is in Virginia, where the, where the Confederate statue issue is really uh, blown up. And Regina, Richmond, the capital, which is about two, two hours drive, two and a half hour drive here from Washington, um, is, is where the governor lives. Has got has got so many Confederate statues that are still there. This kind of symbol of of the South in the Civil War. So it's, it's a very sensitive issue in Virginia. And um, I, one thing people thought might happen was that Barack Obama might might say something. He campaigned with Ralph Northam, and the idea that you know the first African American president that that you know would he maybe make a phone call to Ralph Northam and say, look, you need to step down here because I think. Most people believe it's just it's just not acceptable uh, in 1984, and I think the problem is that it's going to expose a major rift within the Demo- Democratic Party if he refuses to resign because all these people now on the record uh, are there, by, you know, on the record saying that they think he should resign. So it really delegitimizes the Democratic Party and a kind of, and, and their kind of unity over issues of race racism. Suzanne, thank you. That was Suzanne Lynch, our Washington correspondent. We're keeping the attention partially focused on the United States now because last week the White House announced it was suspending compliance with the Cold War era nuclear disarmament treaty with Russia, known as the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. The US said it would formally withdraw from the treaty in six months if Moscow did not end what the US claims are Russian violations of the pact. Unsurprisingly, Russia responded in kind, suspending its own involvement in the treaty and it said it would develop new missiles in response to perceived threats from the US. Daniel McLaughlin has been following the story and he's on the line now from Budapest. Dan, is the Cold War back? Well, certainly judging by this, uh, by the recent developments, it seems to be. I mean, as you mentioned there, this was very much a landmark treaty back in 1987 when it was signed. Uh, Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev signed it and it was seen as a real sign that uh, things were changing. The Cold War was coming to an end. There was a new attitude in Moscow. And um, over subsequent years, thousands of missiles were indeed destroyed under the terms of this treaty. Um, In the last few years, though, both sides, uh, Russia and America, have increased their accusations towards the other side over alleged breaches uh, of this treaty. Um, Going back to the Obama administration, they were already saying that Russia was in breach of this treaty. And now um, Washington has said that that it's had enough and that it's finally time to tear it up. and, And well, what comes next? We don't know yet. And Dan, before we get into how, why this development is causing such concern in Europe, just could we look a bit more closely at what are the alleged Russian violations that the US has pointed to? Yeah, um, uh, the States has said for a while now that Russia has been developing and indeed deploying uh, a land-based missile um, which comes within this range, the range of the INF Treaty. That's missiles between uh, with a range of between 500 kilometres and 5,500 kilometers. Now, the states and its and uh, America's NATO allies agree as well in Europe that Russia has indeed developed this missile, that it has been deploying it, um, and that it is clearly in breach of the treaty for some time now. Uh, Russia denies this. Russia says that the missile does exist, but that its range is only 480 kilometers. So it doesn't fall within the terms of the INF treaty. Uh, Russia also says in response to the American accusations that um, 
the rockets that it has already stationed, the US has already stationed in Romania and plans to deploy to Poland as well, also breached this INF treaty. Now, that's part of a, a missile defense system in Europe that the United States has been developing for a few years. Um, America says that this is a purely defensive system um, designed to shoot down rockets fired from Iran, for example. Russia says that this is a complete falsehood and that it's really, this system is really intended to weaken Russia's nuclear deterrence. And it says that the interceptor missiles that are part of this system, which will be operational in Romania and Poland in a few years' time, that those missiles can also target uh, cities and other strategic sites in Russia within the range that's covered by the INF Treaty. So broadly, they're, they're the accusations that both sides are leveling against each other. And, and what about America's NATO allies in Europe? Do they share the US's assessment of the Russian actions in, in, in this? Or is this another example of the White House sort of, you know, going out on a limb? Well, in terms of actually uh, suspending compliance with the treaty, it does look like America's been pushing ahead with this, perhaps at a pace that some of its NATO allies aren't comfortable with. Um, but in response to the American statement last Friday, NATO allies were quick to come out and say that they do agree with America, that Russia has been in breach of this treaty for some time. They do raise the same fears as Washington as regards the uh, potential danger that this Russian missile poses. Um, and so they have broadly backed them in that sense. At the same time, they have called for Russia and the US to sit down at the negotiating table over this six-month uh, notice period that the Americans have given before they formally pull out of the um, of the agreement, and all NATO allies in Europe so far have been have been calling for uh, negotiations as quickly as possible and hoping that some kind of um, uh, dialogue can take place and a solution can be found without tearing up this uh, this treaty that has kept things under control for the best part of thirty years. And why then, then, is this of particular concern to, to Europe and, and Central European states in particular? Well, I mean, it, it goes back to those Cold War memories that you mentioned at the start. Um, when this treaty came into, was signed in 1987, it was really to tackle a, a very tense situation in Europe, particularly in Central Europe. Because uh, if you think, if you remember back now, you know, most of Central and Eastern Europe was part of the Warsaw Pact. Um, and uh, they were uh, the the countries in this region were hosting um, uh, uh, forces and um, uh, missile systems that were uh, ultimately controlled by by the Soviet Union. Um, and in this across this region, we had uh, SS twenty medium range Soviet missiles facing off against uh, Pershing two Pershing two U.S. missiles stationed around Europe on the other side of the Iron Curtain. And it became very tense. It became very, very concerning for Central European nations. And when the Soviet Union collapsed in 91, and you had this big switch in the area with, with uh, Central and Eastern European states joining NATO, joining the European Union, um, part of their relief at doing that was, was the idea that they weren't going to be caught up again um, in an arms race between uh, East and West and that they were all uh, effectively US allies, um, and, and that we wouldn't have these, these hostile deployments of, um, of nuclear-capable missiles facing each other uh, with, with very short um, strike times. They can be launched very quickly. 
they can strike very quickly and it can be very difficult. The the, the, there is not necessarily a time window that allows a counter-strike before these missiles could start doing major damage on, on whichever targets they're aimed at. So it's, it's memories of that time. We've had top EU officials and top NATO officials both saying very clearly in the wake of um, the US announcement on Friday and Vladimir Putin's uh, response to it on Saturday, saying that Russia was also suspending compliance with the treaty, uh, saying that Central Europe is very worried about this and that we don't want the region to become part of a new arms race and to be and to become effectively caught in the crosshairs um, as the US and Russia develop new missile technology to target each other amid deteriorating uh, political and diplomatic relations. And it's ironic now, isn't it, that all of this is happening um, at the same time as there are concerns about Donald Trump's closeness to Vladimir Putin. Um, that's it's kind of a contradiction at the heart, isn't it, of US foreign policy. This can be quite difficult to assess, you know, from a distance as to what's really going on. Yeah, it is. It's a, it's a, a, um, a contradiction that's really run through the Trump presidency so far. I mean, on the one hand, he's very reluctant to personally uh, even name Russia as a country. When he was talking about the uh, Russia breaching this treaty the other day, he did not even name Russia. He just talked about another state that was not uh, remaining in, in compliance with this INF treaty. Um, he's very loath to name Putin and criticize Putin. Um, he claims that in their meetings, they've actually got on very well, that there is a good chemistry there, that it would be great if America could have good relations with Russia. Um, and certainly that was the expectation. He came into office uh, stating that in, in terms of foreign policy, he would love to have a better relationship with Russia. Um, and his own personal rhetoric really hasn't strayed from that very far. Um, but at the same time, uh, the other key departments in the United States, Department of State, Department of Defense, they continue to hold a pretty hawkish line towards Russia on key issues. Um, if you look at Europe, that would be um, Ukraine, probably most strikingly. And now we also have this missile issue, which suggests that whatever Trump's own personal views are of Putin and whatever he may want to achieve as, re as regards US-Russia relations, there are still major, major issues and maybe even an increasing list of issues on which Moscow and Washington just can't get on at the moment. And, and, and finally, Dan, then what's the, the route out of this potential crisis? What do European leaders want to see happen now? Um, well, that is a big problem. They don't really offer an alternative um, because uh, analysts, defence analysts, looking at this treaty, they do say, well, maybe this is a relic of the Cold War, um, that we can't simply expect Russia and America to still abide by it when they have both got missiles which could potentially be in breach of this treaty. And a major factor, certainly from uh, America's point of view, but it's also of concern for Russia, um, is what China has been doing. China has developed um, mid-range missiles, which would fall under this same range, the range covered by the INF Treaty. But China is not bound by it. China obviously wasn't a signatory to it. So America is looking at China as a rising threat. And it would like, if there is a kind of um, restructuring, a rebuilding of um, uh, arms control architecture, it would like China to be part of that. But that is a very complex issue. If you do try to bring China into a new deal with America and Russia, China is likely to look across and say, well, we'd like India to be part of this as well. 
and India to be bound with um, to be bound by new controls. India could then potentially say, "Well, we'd like Pakistan to be bound by it." So it's it's quite easy to to tear this treaty up, but it will be extremely complicated to um, come up with a new and effective um, agreement to really take uh, take into account all the different fears and all the different uh, viewpoints that are out there. Dan. Thanks for that. Um, well, that's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.